I suspect many of us remember that fairly iconic line from uh, Crocodile Dundee 2, I think it was. And uh, it came to mind when I was reflecting on the armour of God. As you would see, the armour that is in mind is the Roman armour. And the uh, Roman military was a, uh, a very efficient and um, terrifying presence. Even the, if I put it this way, Jeff, that the carcass of the, of the armour is intimidating enough, let alone seeing it in its full presence. But there's a sense in which when Paul talks about the armour of God, he's in the world of the, uh, the Roman Empire where the Roman world was under military rule, under martial law. And the presence of the, the military was all pervasive. And if you feel foul and the uh, military would turn up, you would certainly be apprehensive, if not straight out fearful. They uh, um, were skilled in the art of ruthless suppression and even of terror culminating ultimately in the crucifixion, as I mentioned last week, the way in which uh, slaves and traitors were dealt with. But there's a sense in which when Paul talks about the armour of God, he's saying, you think that's armour? Let me tell you about the real armour. And he goes into the spiritual armour that is a familiar passage from uh, many a children's talk. In fact, I recall one children's talk that uh, Daryl Teague did a number of years ago here in St Matthews uh, on the armour of God and uh, Daryl being the presence he was decided to equate putting on the armour collectively as the equivalent to a rugby scrum so he came as it happened in an all black top and uh, gathered together some troops and volunteers to put together a scrum pack and said that's where the, the collective power comes going on this past weekend. I suspect it'll be more the Wallabies than the All Blacks, but anyway, we won't talk rugby for now. But it is a collective image. Roman armour is only really as effective as the formations that they develop, and they would vary, uh, in terms of military strategy, very effective, as you could see from that particular photo. It is a group image, not a solo knight going out there. And that's good to be reminded that this is something that we need to hear collectively and encourage each other in putting on our spiritual armour. This is actually the final week of our series looking that I commenced back in February, looking at God's mission plan revealed, shalom in the sanctuary of God. It's a summary of what God's purpose is from Genesis 1 right through to Revelation 22. It is a work in which uh, order is brought out of chaos and characterised by that quality of shalom. And I'll come back to that in a few moments. But as we've been using Paul's letter to the Ephesians as a, a lens to view this armour, we are reminded that this is part of a much bigger backdrop Ephesus was renowned for its spiritual connections with Artemis of the Ephesians, Diana was the Roman name, and a myriad of other mystery cults and others that claimed to have connections into those deeper truths. And we need to remember at this stage that the Christian church was just a speck in the eye of the wider Roman Empire. The church in Ephesus would have been 40 or 50 people, perhaps in three households, and it wasn't a great number. 
So when they sort of reflect on this great mission that is revealed, the mystery that is revealed, then they'll think through, well, it's a pretty big task and you want to use us. We're just nobodies. And so the spiritual armour is in that context of being part, of being enlisted, of taking on a partnership in something that is just beyond our comprehension. So Paul uses military language. Take your stand. Our struggle was not against flesh and blood. Stand your ground. And after you've done everything, to stand. Stand firm then. It's just repeated, that imagery. Now, I suspect it's only a year or two since you last got involved in a tug of war. Or maybe a bit longer than a few year or two. But you remember that experience. Though those of you who have a dog, our dog is quite persistent in a tug of war. But in a, a genuine tug of war, the challenge is not just to hold fast to the rope, it's actually to keep your feet, isn't it? And that's the imagery that Paul was using. Stand firm, be resolute. And it's not the armour in and of itself, it's the God who provides the armour. It's the gospel armour that we need to keep in mind. So let's run through some of those elements. They are fairly familiar. Um, and I've now got a whole new set of photos, Jeff, I'll use in future years when I do this of the, uh, the various armour. There is the belt of truth. Perhaps not the most uh, dramatic element of the armour, but it is a vital element the belt of truth and all the protection it provides. Up until a few decades ago, we would have affirmed the importance of truth in a very straightforward way. Well, of course, truth is important. We all seek the truth. But we're now living in a world in which the whole question of truth is a battle and the notion that we can deconstruct truth and I can have my truth and you can have your truth and that's the way it is. But actually, that is... It is uh, mythical, even dangerous. Truth does matter. You know, I could say to you, well, you know, you tell me that the world is part of a wider cosmos and all these different moving elements that go around. I actually think the world is flat. That's my trip. I'm happy with that. And you'll probably consign me to some quiet room somewhere. And it Actually, truth does make a difference. And the truths that we affirm, the worldview we affirm actually isn't just a personal thing. It'll impact how we relate to others, where they recognise other cultures, other races, other ethnicities as all sharing the one blood of humanity. If we recognise that whether we are slave or free or Jew or Gentile, slave or master, whether that actually counts, comes out of our belief systems. Beliefs matter. If you doubt that question, if you are called into a court of law and asked to give evidence and where you're asked to swear by almighty God or whatever form of affirmation you make that you'll tell the the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Could you imagine the reaction if you were to say to the judge saying, well, actually I'm not into that stuff. I'll give you my, my truth, it works for me and see what the reaction you get. It's dangerous nonsense but truth matters. And the point that Paul has been making in uh, Ephesians, and we see it right across in the Bible and across the New Testament, is that God reveals truth. We don't know everything. We don't know all the answers. There are many questions that we sit with. 
but the core truth of God's purpose and God's character and what the whole meaning of life is and where there is to be hope has been revealed. The mystery is no longer an exclusive mystery. The heavens have been opened up. God's truth and God's purpose has been revealed. And that becomes the belt of truth that we have buckled around our waist. And then we come to the body armour of God's righteousness. And again, the body armour, I suspect, is the, the, uh, literally the backbone, but it's what it, it enfolds all our vital organs. It's protected by the body armour. Our heart, all that makes us, our lungs and our kidneys and all the vital organs uh, is surrounded. And here, first and foremost, it's God's righteousness that wraps around us. I was trying to think of a contemporary equivalent, and I rather like the, uh, the, uh, the, the, the vests that now uh, police wear, that they are surrounded with something to cover their vital organs to provide protection from attack. It doesn't prevent all the attacks, but it certainly minimises the potential for harm or damage. And I've been reflecting on this uh, throughout the week and thinking through, isn't that image lovely of thinking at God's righteousness, God's promise to do the right thing, to uphold all that is good and right, to wrap around us and to keep us protected. That is the, the armour of God's, the chestplate of righteousness that is uh, enfolding us. And then we come to the gospel of peace. And here it gets down to that standing firm. How can we keep firm to the ground? Where does the, the rubber hit the road in our footwear? And here it's the image of agility that comes. Your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. And notice that word, peace. The gospel that we affirm, the gospel we proclaim, is the gospel of shalom. Why we've been using that word. It is that notion of God who is seeking to provide a, um, a secure garden. The idea of a sanctuary is a protected garden where seedlings can grow into maturity, where there is a flourishing and there is a health and where there is restoration and a healing takes place. All that imagery that's used of the gospel, that becomes where we find that solid ground. Whatever terrain we find ourselves having to navigate in life and sometimes it's challenging sometimes it's that uphill stretch where we wonder how we can cope with those challenges Jan and I've experienced something that over recent weeks when that frustration we had in in New Zealand it's on New Zealand in uh, England in Lambeth and of hearing about my father's death and then realising it wasn't a simple thing of just booking a flight and heading back and then having to work hard to find a seat to, uh, to be able to return for Dad's funeral. And having just managed to get that, then having coming down with COVID. And the frustration of saying there's nothing we can do. So we prayed. And that's where it enabled us to, to rethink, well, we still have much to be thankful for. Um, that family were there and the funeral would take place and we could contribute for the technology and we were well supported by friends and uh, new people we, we met on our, our level and had food provided. That's where we can stand firm when the going gets tough. 
I suspect the modern equivalent of the, uh, the sandal in those days. At one stage it was made by South Australia. I'm not sure whether we still have the contract, but the, uh, the military boots are uh, not quite as agile perhaps, but they are certainly grounded in that standing firm imagery that we uh, also have, we receive in our uh, gospel armour. Then we come up to the shield of faith. Now, Jeff, am I imagining that the rounded one comes from being a centurion or being an officer um, and the others are more squared because they'll be in the formation? Um, So you can see that the formation itself is designed to work together both in terms of what goes before us and over the heads and it becomes a uh, a formidable formation, not just in defence but also in attack Take up the shield of faith in particular in protecting against the, uh, the darts, the fiery darts of the evil one. The word Satan means accuser. And they do get thrown at us, those questions around who do you think you are, why are you here, that those niggling questions around hypocrisy. If people really knew what you were really like, you know there's so much more than how you present you know, all the questions about, I haven't got the ability, not me. All those questions. The, the, the work of the evil one is a big picture one. We can picture the storms and the, the, the forces of light and dark and all those questions about all that is uh, uh, good being challenged by hatred and fear by being that which is affirming and embracing. But it also starts within us those voices in our heads, and we need to have that shield, the shield of faith to protect us from those challenges. One of the shields of faith is uh, the ministry, a particular gifting of faith that Paul lists elsewhere is one of the gifts that are given. We all have faith, but some have a particular charisma, a particular gift of faith. And I love to know at times when I'm challenged even when Fiona and I were over and knowing that uh, our church family was praying for us. Um, that, that imagery of the shields going up and we've, we've got your back, we've got you covered, that's a powerful image, isn't it? And it makes a difference. Then the headwear. And you can see that this was a uh, um, design because of the, the force of the blows and various things um, is the, the helmet of salvation. God that covers us and the notion of salvation is um, so powerful. And finally, the sword of the spirit. And here the imagery takes an interesting turn. It isn't just the, uh, uh, the, the sharpness of the two-edged sword. And Jeff, I did actually take the sword out to check and I've got a photo of it. Can, uh, don't play with this at home, kids, but Jeff will show you the sword. It's an impressive piece of... Uh, of, uh, it's the only offensive item that is named here. But here Paul describes it as a sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And the word of God here isn't just the, you know, the Bible, the written word. It's all part of it, but it's much bigger than that. When God speaks, things happen. It, it shapes the world around us right from the moment of creation. When God speaks, God is at work. And here it is, the, the, uh, the, uh, the sword of the spirit that is bringing life and energy 
and uh, cutting through the darkness and that which would otherwise entangle. Again, it's a very um, uh, vital image. So we have this armour that we can put on. The question is, is the armour sitting in a black closet somewhere, the spiritual armour? Have we tucked it away and we are largely not using it? For this, I want to use a quote from a book by Alison Morgan, who I managed to, uh, to meet a number of years ago. And uh, her book in the Wild Gospel, she uh, narrates her own experience, a story. She's a, one of those uh, alarmingly intelligent, incisive um, women who was a, a strong atheist and Marxist and others when she went to Cambridge University until a series of encounters changed her worldview and she came to understand God as in the Gospel of, uh, of Grace. She has this quote, and I just want to let the quote stand for itself. I don't want to... Uh, Uh, to provide commentary on it, but just listen to the power of this quote. Alison Morgan says, We stand in the church at the end of a long process of accommodation in which we have unconsciously sought to harmonise the gospel with the assumptions of our culture, a culture in which abandoning the quest for absolute truth has embraced a whole new set of values Rationalist, materialist, technological, reductionalist. The effect is that we have gradually turned the gospel from something subversive and life-changing to something tamed, packaged and institutionalised. The gospel has been squeezed out from under the platform of our lives to become merely a picture on the wall, familiar but essentially unrelated to everyday reality. Alarmingly perceptive. So where do we go with this? If we are called to be part of this mission of God as a church as well as followers, and Paul could not be clearer, where do we start? What is the fundamental element to putting this armour on. Pray in the Spirit at all times and on every occasion. Stay alert and be persistent in your prayers for all believers everywhere. I know that my prayer life could be better than it is. I'm not saying that I'm not conscious of God and I don't have conversations with God throughout the day. I do know that we gather together and we pray, but that intentional prayer, setting aside the busyness to sit, to pray, to hear, to reflect, we could do much more. We have a number of exciting projects underway, some ideas that I think will germinate and the whole idea of how we can create some community events to invite people to, to build relationships, to begin to strengthen a sense of connectedness with our outer community. There's a meeting tomorrow, you'll hear about it in the notices briefly. But unless we are prayerful about these areas, they will wither, they will have no life. That intentionality of sitting down and saying, if I'm too busy to pray, then I'm too busy not to pray. 
pray in the Spirit and the collective armour of God gathers together. Let us do that before we do anything else. We're having that prayer morning coming up on Friday the 16th of September. Again, it'll be in the notices as we lead into St Matthew's Day. This is the front line and the weapon, the, the power we have, the equipment we have is prayer. So what difference did it make in the early church? In the year 40, it's estimated by Rodney Stark in his book The Triumph of Christianity and he's done a number of studies around what we know of the various cities and the size of house churches. About the year 40, right across the Greek and Roman world, the followers of Jesus probably numbered about a 1,000. This is a decade after the, the death of Jesus and the resurrection. You might think of the church in, in Jerusalem and perhaps another 50 or 60 in Antioch and Syria and across the churches of Galatia and Philippi, tiny church, probably about 20. In Rome, Ephesus, about 1,000 all up at that stage. The challenge that this group of nobodies, as the song puts it, was able to do something because of the one who calls them by putting the armour into practice, by praying and living out all the things that Paul has been talking about. By the year 350, and there's a whole historical background I won't go into, it's estimated that the, the, uh, the Christian movement had reached just under 32 million when the Roman Empire became officially Christian, it wasn't just a pronouncement from the emperor, Constantine. It was because the grassroots movement had been happening across every town and city, was being named and been given a legitimacy. He didn't create that number. That number was existing and he gave them space to name it. So how much could that growth happen to occur? Well... Uh, Rodney Stark in his book says, within a decade of the year 40, the early church movement probably grew to about 7,500. By, by the first century, about 40,000. By the year 180, and it's a time of persecution and, and with the spread of the Gospels, about 107,000, 108,000. By the year 200, a century... Um, sorry, about 160 years after the time of Jesus, up in the, about 210,000. <coughs> By the year 250, up to about a million. By 300, up to about 6 million. By 312, and there's various events that become why those particular dates are named, just under 9 million, then up to about 350 at that moment when Constantine made it a, an official religion of the Roman Empire. This is actually the real world. And there's a whole lot of stories behind those numbers of what the gospel was doing in communities and uh, the faithfulness and the kindness and taking care of widows and reaching out for others who were otherwise rejected. Now that growth wasn't all just a one constant line going up. It was a a lot of different moments and movements and different areas and different directions. But that, based on that growth, was something like an annual growth rate of about 3.4% per year, year on year. 
as it develops. Suddenly you break it around that sense and saying, well, that could be the same for us. The world in which we live today, the church is no longer in a privileged position in society. We're no longer a part of the, in, in uh, our part of the world, the established church. There is no established church. In fact, there never has been in Australia. We no longer have the ability to, to draw on the resources and the profile and to make the statements and to exercise some of the levers of social control or social influence. The days when a rector of St Matthew's Manly could stride onto Manly Oval on a Sunday afternoon and tell a game of rugby league to stop and to go home, and they did, is long gone. <laughs> it actually happened in the 1950s. I always thought it might have been a, a legend or a myth, but one of our church members, and I've forgotten her name, I must remember, um, I used to visit her at the Lima, uh, was the church secretary at the time, and she said it actually did happen. As the world around us is changing and we are now a minority group that has to uh, advocate and explain and to try and model what we're talking about, we are in challenging times. The spiritual battle is very real. But the God who is at work amongst us and who has equipped us with all the gospel armour that we have is able to do these things. Whether we will be part of that it's actually up to us. Might it be that the gifts that we have been given are lying unwrapped and we haven't actually opened them? I believe we are. And I believe as we go into a new season, as we do some pruning and as we do some fertilising and we do some watering and all that comes through, that's going to be the imagery we're going to explore on our prayer morning. It has been raised up. But we can't just sit back and wait for others to do it. That reading from Joshua, the song Nobody says, it's always been the experience of God's people saying, it's a terrific idea, God. I love the idea, but others need to do it. And God says, no, it's you, every one of you, together, collectively. Amen.